So now in 1968, Nixon wins the election. And in 1969, he becomes president. And there's an extent to which Nixon should be understood through his personal biography, which is that he grew up pretty poor uh, in California. He was born in Orange County. Um, and he got into Harvard, but his dad was sick. And so he decided to stay closer to home, and he went to Whittier College. Um, also unclear whether he would have been able to afford going to Harvard. Um, he, he got some money from his like aunt to help pay for his college. And he always had a kind of a chip on his shoulder um, about class um, and just about like elites and insiders. They weren't fraternities at Whittier College, which is actually in the LA area. Um, but there were these social clubs and he wasn't allowed into the social club that had like all of the like wealthy, successful people. And so he created his own separate social club. And I don't think it's a stretch to suggest that this is a really important part of understanding who this man is because he forever has this anger towards um, elites and insiders and he's very paranoid. He always believes that people are out to get him. Now, tie that into the fact that he lost the 1960 election to this elitist rich boy from Massachusetts whose dad helped him steal the election. And you can see how that paranoia just gets deeper. And that is what makes the Southern strategy so interesting because the Republican Party has not been the party of the working class ever because the working class was usually in favor of FDR-style programs to help them get jobs. Now, there's a couple different ways to read what's changed. One is um, that the economy, like the New Deal works. The inequality has really gone down. Um, and even under Eisenhower, the tax rate for the wealthiest people in this country was like 90%. 90%. Today, it's like 30%, and that's without lawyers to help you get out of it. So we were in a time of the great American middle class for white people. Um, and so the kind of people who a generation earlier were just surviving the depression and really wanted government's help, now with the help of government roads and schools and houses in the suburbs and um, an economy that's really boomed, they're maybe less interested in welfare than they were before. They don't see welfare as something that's going to help them. They see it as something that's going to help black people. And the other way you have to understand it is that before, that whole system didn't require them to accept desegregation. And now we're just you know, coming into the time where segregation is being ended. And so for a group of people who before their interests were primarily economic, now have interests because they didn't have to think about race because they had sold out um, or they were being given a deal where they didn't have to live among people of a different race. Race is now the central issue. And so Nixon runs um, using the phrase the silent majority. And his theory is that there's a whole group of people in the country who aren't against the war, who aren't protesting, who aren't part of this sexual revolution, who are regular Americans and regular meaning the kind of Eisenhower era conservatives who want law and order, who want states' rights, and who just want all of this to stop. 
Um, and when he wins, he sees that as a vindication of it and an indictment of the elites who were with the Kennedys. He hated the Kennedys, right? Um, but he doesn't stop being paranoid that those people are trying to, to get rid of him. Um, and even as he wins this election, he ends up winning the next election in an even bigger landslide. But he always feels like he's an underdog, and like people are out to get him. And he kept an enemies list, like a list of people. And on his enemies list was people like Paul Newman um, and Allen Ginsberg. Like he, he felt that he's from California, Los Angeles. So he liberal Hollywood, which he saw as, remember, he had been part of that committee that investigated Hollywood for being full of communists. And his paranoia also has to be related to having built his career on like seeking out secret communists who are around him. Were there any? Yes, there were definitely co communists in Hollywood. But what does it mean that there were communists in Hollywood? Like a lot of them were really liberal people who had sided, who had been members of the communist party at some point. It's not like they were like Soviet propagandists. Right. Um, but he resented that type of liberal. And it also meant that he resented Jews and Jews were in control of a lot of the major Hollywood studios. Um, and he viewed them as um, part of this group that looked down on people like him. Here's a telling story. In the first election for vice president, um, Nixon got caught in this scandal um, where it came out that he had been receiving gifts from uh, a bunch of different donors to the campaign um, and that he hadn't reported those. And legally, to prevent bribes, you have to report. This is back under Eisenhower. Okay. This, is, this is like yeah. or Nixon origin story. Um, and... Eisenhower is ready to dump him from the ticket because of this scandal. Mm -hmm. And he goes on television. And it's at the time, it's the most watched event in television history in the United States. He says, I'm going to give this speech. Everyone watch. <laughs> goes on TV. And what he says is, I want you all to understand, I'm not a wealthy man. And uh, I, to make you understand that, I am now going to read to you all of my finances. And then on national television, he reads out a list of how much money he has in his bank account. And he says, I owe my parents $3,000 that I've never paid them back. And I owe them. And so he's just like laying this out. And at the end, he says, um, you know, I, I received some of these gifts. And I know that some of them uh, I'll need to return. Um, but unlike many of my people, you know, many people out there, uh, I'm not, I haven't become rich off of politics. And there is a gift that we received, which is a little dog named Checkers that my kids own and play with. And I want to say to everyone in this country that no matter what happens, I'm not going to give back that dog. And it was called the Checkers speech. <laughs> and everyone in the country's reaction was, oh, it was, it's one of the greatest political speeches of all time, right? He like, he like showed that he was this underdog. But it's such a, it's, it's, a, it's an amazing Nixon moment because it's like, it's both so brilliant and honest and touching. And it also is weird and, and it's, 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 it's also very much tied into this victim mentality, right? He always, he was running for vice president of the United States. 
And you're right, he wasn't wealthy, but he had a lot of power and influence, and he yet wants everyone to see him as this person who's being wronged. We should watch it at some point. You should see it. It's so good. Um, oh, my God. So this is the Richard Nixon who's now president, and he's like, I'm showing it to all of you, you know? Until Donald Trump, I think it's hard to suggest that we've had a president who, was more, who had more darkness in his personal life than Nixon. You can listen to these recordings of him talking about these goddamn Jews who want to come and get me and how he just wants to like destroy everyone who's out, who's after him. And, you know, uh, it's, it's weird. Doesn't he know that he's being secretly recorded? Actually, it's not clear that he knew that he was being secretly recorded. Yeah. Uh, it was like the kind of thing that someone probably mentioned. It wasn't like there were like someone holding a microphone. It was like it was in the place and someone probably said, oh, by the way, there's a secret record somewhere where things are being recorded, but it's held and it'll never, there's, and it's legally can never be released. And he, and he was probably like, okay, whatever. And just, he's president. He's just not thinking about it. No one had heard any of the tapes from Kennedy. No one had heard any of the tapes from Johnson. Yeah. Maybe he didn't even know. Wasn't a big, it wasn't seen as a big, you know, recording equipment was kind of new. Like the ability to record cheaply so much stuff was kind of new. It was like, this is part of the new, how historians will have your legacy. Yeah, but you would think that presidents would be really aware of their legacy and not want to. Well, after what happens to Richard, in case you don't already realize, these tapes are going to be his entire downfall. So we've talked a lot about how Nixon was paranoid, right? But What's interesting is that if you actually look at his list of accomplishments in office, he governed as like a fairly smart, moderate president. Um, and in part, that's because his core ideology was much less conservative than the people who had at this point sort of taken over the Republican Party, people like Barry Goldwater um, and uh, future President Ronald Reagan, who were like really um, against big government and wanted to see government programs um, shrunk, and also uh, evangelical Christians who were becoming more powerful at this time as part of a backlash to feminism and um, to kind of the decadent hippie lifestyle. Um, you know, Nixon wasn't one of those. He was a he was a Republican from a super anti-communist era, um, but also an era that was like Eisenhower. Lots of big government programs to help. You know raise the middle class and build highways. And Nixon, during his presidency, created the Environmental Protection Agency. Um, and he proposed a legislation that would have given national health insurance. Um, he proposed legislation that would have even given a like minimum income to all Americans. Now, they didn't get some of these things passed, but it's telling that that was sort of his position. He also, on foreign policy, turned out to be um, a really smart operator in some ways. Um, and in part, it was because his anti-communist credentials were stronger than probably any president we'd had. So there was nobody who was going to be like Nixon secretly a communist. And so actually his first move uh, in office from a foreign policy perspective was that he went to China. And not Taiwan, he went to communist China. And he said that... There's a billion people in this, in this country, and they shouldn't be isolated, and I am going to be the president who brings them back into the fold and who like brings the United States close to China, which they're kind of three big superpowers by this point. It's clear that China, even though they've gone through like horrific times under Mao, 
is going to be a big player. They have nuclear weapons. They have a large economy. And if it's sort of a three-way competition between China, the Soviet Union, and the United States, and the history has been of these two communist countries being close together, but now there was the beginning of a split between the Soviets and the Chinese um, after Mao's death, and in part under Mao. So Mao has died, and Nixon flies to China and meets with Zhou Enlai, who is the head of the Communist Party there. And they go on all these like trips together, and it's a very ceremonial visit. But then after that... Um, the U.S. recognizes the People's Republic of China as the official government of China and starts opening trade with China. Um, and it also reorients the foreign policy of the region to feel that it's not all communist countries in Asia are against the United States it's, or even in the world. Um, so there's this thing called the Nixon in China effect, which is the idea that if you have spent years cultivating your image in one direction, it gives you space to make daring decisions in the other direction. And this was in part played out by his foreign policy team, which was led by a guy named Henry Kissinger, who was um, a very clever um, politician or di diplomat um, who helped put this whole China strategy together. Nixon also ended the war in Vietnam, although... Um, first, he switched to a policy that was incredibly devastating, which was basically just carpet bombing villages and um, cities in North Vietnam. And they dropped like thousands of tons of explosives on Vietnam every day. And they also dropped bombs on Cambodia and Laos, uh, which were neighboring countries that had basically gotten pulled in to the war. And uh, Nixon ends up signing a peace treaty, that the Paris Peace Accords, that ends the war in Vietnam. Um, but there continues to be low-level secret operations that are going on. Um, and it's only years later that we really see the extent of how uh, involved the U.S. remained. And in both Laos and Cambodia, um, uh, communist parties come into power. And in Cambodia, that's when you have the Khmer Rouge and the killing fields, this like massive, insane genocide that probably wouldn't have happened if the U.S. hadn't, um, you know, so forcefully destroyed elements of their country and created this backlash that was so intense. Hmm. So Nixon is a foreign policy president with a certainly mixed legacy um, and a domestic president who governs more moderately than you might have expected given his um, the people who supported him. The opening to China um, shows that our understanding of what the Cold War means is becoming slightly more complex. Um, he runs for re-election against a guy named George McGovern who is from South Dakota um, and is an open liberal, um, very much uh, aligned with the anti-war movement. And, you know, we ultimately end up leaving Vietnam, um, not because Nixon just like wakes up and decides that we should do it, but because we're really losing. And there starts to be the biggest two things. One, Congress, which is still controlled by the Democrats, starts cutting off funding to operations in Vietnam. And that's really been proven to be the only way that Congress can really stop wars is by cutting off the funding. Um, and two, U.S. troops start to revolt in Vietnam. And the practice of fragging, which is basically where your commanding officer comes in and says, hey, get up, we're going to go into that village 
um, and then you kill your own officers um, was basically a form of mutiny that pushed Nixon to the bargaining table. I mean, the, also the level of atrocities against the Vietnamese civilians that should be laid out in any conversation of, about what was going on in Vietnam, um, of whole villages being destroyed and like the Milay massacre where women and children were like all killed and thrown into a pit. It really eroded the American people's sense of who their own government was, you know? Um, and it was televised. The, the, there were, in a way that we actually haven't really seen since, there, were, there was access by, for journalists to American operations that showed people burning down whole villages and showed you know, people shooting what appeared to be unarmed civilians. And that really eroded support for the war. So there's a whole cluster of factors um, that can be explained for why the U.S. finally ends up pulling out of Vietnam, but it took a long time. Um, that being said, the one that's probably least convincing is that the anti-war movement itself ended the Vietnam War. Because while those protests um, were really effective in eroding people's faith, it didn't seem to have a lot of effect on the government actually changing its policies. I don't know if I want to stand by all of that. But the fact is that when in 1972, George McGovern, who was a avowed anti-war person, ran against Richard Nixon, um, he was painted as really out of touch. And because he was siding with hippies, he was siding with the counterculture, um, and Nixon was pretty popular. And by now, he was able to claim that he was on the way to ending the Vietnam War anyway. Um, but he was paranoid that there were all these people who were going to try to stop him from winning re-election. And so he, as he had been doing for years, was paying off these groups of people called the Committee to Re-elect the President, or CREEP, and that's actually what they called themselves, uh, to pull what were called dirty tricks, which were any strategy to try to undermine the opposition. And there were all sorts of different strategies, but uh, one of the main ones was that they tried to steal information from the McGovern campaign. And that included one night where they hired burglars to break into the headquarters of the McGovern campaign to try to steal any information that they could find. And the, they were at the Watergate Hotel or complex in Washington, D.C. Um, and the break-in happened. It was like, so, like sort of noted that there had been a break-in, but nobody saw this as like Nixon's breaking in. It was just like some burglars broke in. <laughs> to the uh, Watergate complex. And Nixon won re-election, as I said earlier, in a huge landslide. McGovern didn't even win his home state. I think he only won Massachusetts, the most liberal, Kennedy-loving state in the country. Um, maybe Washington, D.C., maybe Minnesota. What would that information about McGovern, how would that even help them that much anyway? Yeah, well, they broke into his psychiatrist's office and they were trying to prove that he was mentally ill um, I think it was at some point it was just sort of a habit of Nixon's to do things like this. He had whole groups of people called the plumbers whose jobs it was, whose job it was to shut down any leaks within the administration through whatever means were necessary. And he, it was just part of how politics worked. And he seemed to sort of take some pleasure in doing these kind of things. But it does seem bizarre for him to win an election so big. Why would he need to pull any? He was going to win anyway. Sounds like he was just mentally ill. <laughs> yeah, and I, I, I think the tapes kind of bear out 
that his, his sense of paranoia was intense. Now, supposedly, on the night that he wins re-election, he was sitting in the White House just fuming and so angry because he just felt that everyone was out to get him. And he said that people, were, people knew that, you know, his, his, eventually he was going to be leaving Washington and now these people know they won't have Richard Nixon to kick around anymore. And it's like, what is going on in this guy's head, you know? And then pretty quickly it unravels. The Watergate um, burglary leads to these reporters, Woodward and Bernstein, who, as people know the story, slowly connect the dots that lead from this burglary to this whole system of corruption within the White House. And articles of impeachment are drawn up within Congress, and it's pretty clear that Nixon is going to be the first president not only to be impeached, as Andrew Johnson was, but to be removed from office. Um, and before you know, the full extent of Watergate comes out, it becomes clear that his vice president, Spiro Agnew, has cheated on his taxes. And so Agnew has to resign and leave. And um, Nixon then is like about to face impeachment and he doesn't have a vice president. And the Speaker of the House is a Democrat. So they need to get a vice president in place. And he chooses a guy with a really clean reputation who is the minority leader in the House, Gerald Ford. Uh, it's not clear. He's not being impeached yet. Watergate is starting to bubble up, but he's going to choose his new vice president, right? Mm -hmm. Chooses Gerald Ford. Um, and then a few months in to Gerald Ford being the vice president, maybe not even, Nixon resigns. He knew he would be impeached and, uh, and removed from office, and that would be um, really painful. And so why do it? You can't fire me, I quit. And he gets in a helicopter and does his famous peace sign, which was originally the V for victory sign, and gets in a helicopter and flies away. And I think if you view the combination of, just think about, this is only four years after 1968. So the country seems like it's coming apart in that way. And now the combination of, you know, the Vietnam War and the revelation that the president was hiring criminals to do these things, which, you know, if you look back to earlier presidents, that was kind of stuff was going on. But not, not in the modern era with the kind of dark, paranoid feeling that was associated with Nixon. People had really lost faith in their government. And to then see the president, which has never happened before, just choose to leave is a dramatic moment. And into this dramatic moment steps probably the least dramatic person you can imagine. <laughs> Gerald Ford from Michigan. And what did he do for the rest of his life? Um, well, he moved back to California and he uh, continued to write about how people were out to get him and he did some interviews and he tried to defend his legacy 
he felt that he had he felt that this like little thing had overshadowed all of his big accomplishments. And there's an extent to which that's exactly right. Mm-hmm. This little thing overshadowed some pretty big decisions that could have been debated and considered as his legacy. But instead of it being China and Vietnam, on which he would be judged, it was Watergate. Well, and then of course, and we've just skipped over the whole fact that like to prove this, they found the tapes, you know, and then, and no one in the country knew that these tapes existed. And so when it was revealed that there were secret audio tapes and then they, you know, Congress mandates that the tapes be handed over and then Nixon sues and says that I, he doesn't have to hand over the tapes because he believed that they would always be secret. And so then there's this Supreme Court case called Nixon versus United States in which the Supreme Court says the president has to follow the laws because Nixon's position was, if the president does it, it's not illegal, um, which is just not true. Um, and then the tapes get burned and destroyed. And so there's like a whole section of the tapes that we never will get to hear. Um, this was incredible television. Who burned and destroyed the tapes? Uh, his secretary, Rosemary Woods. Whoa. She claimed that she did it herself without any orders. We don't have any tapes after Nixon. That's really too bad. I know. They're so fun to listen to.